When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 102 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret, never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. My special guest in this episode is Claire Mahoney, a media professional for over 25 years as a journalist, editor, and broadcaster, She's also an active member and influential promoter of the mod scene with a passion for music, the jam, Paul Weller, fashion, arts and culture. We'll hear about her love for those things and her latest project, Detail Magazine, a print publication that offers an in-depth look at the UK's most stylish subculture, mod. And we'll find out more about her book, Welsh Mod, as well. So many great memories in this one as well. This is another really special conversation. Let's get into it. Claire, thanks for joining me. Pleasure, Dan. Thanks for asking me to be on. Hey, look, you've got a brand new haircut for the podcast, right? I have, actually, yeah. (laughs) Any excuse for a brand new haircut? (laughs) Why the heck not? Hey, look, I want to kick this off, right? We're going to get in a time machine. We're going to go back to the 29th of November, 1982, to 14-year-old you and a a gig at the local Lido. Yeah, well, not that local, down the road. I had to actually um, get on a a coach to get there, but it was my first jam gig. So, yeah, it's where my whole journey started, really, on that coach in my little boating blaze with my ski pants on and my really hideous white socks. Remember those sort of toweling white socks? <laughs> I think I saw Paul wearing a pair of those on the final night of the gig on the latest tour in Brixton. He had yeah. these beautiful white trousers and I was like, I think he's got a pair of those white toweling socks. Right? <laughs> yeah, they were really horrible and they always used to get kind of threads pulled on them or the cheap ones that I had did. I don't know why we thought that was a mod look. I don't know. <laughs> I did that all again. But anyway, I was wearing those. Yeah, and I got a coach. My mum dropped me off down at Westgate Street, down by the stadium in Cardiff. 14-year-old me got on a coach with a load of like-minded people. Were there friends of yours on the coach as well? Or was no, I was meeting friends there. So oh, right, it, this wow. is down in Port Talbot, so this is, what, 30, 40 miles away. So, yeah, I kind of 
I don't know. I was quite. I don't remember being scared though, because as soon as you got on the coach, you just thought you were with your kind of people. I just spent my life at, at, at school just fighting with Duran Duran fans, going, "No, Paul Weller. Paul Weller is the best." They go, "Paul Weller's ugly," and I was going, "No, he's not. <laughs> you don't understand." <laughs> <laughs> is Simon Le Bon's better looking? No, yeah, not. exactly, exactly. Simon <laughs> Le Bon, where is he now? Exactly, eh? eh? Yeah, I mean, it takes them about fifteen years to do a new album didn't it well as releasing them every month at least it yeah. feels like half the time um, this, is, this is the wonderful thing about being a fan since you were a kid is that you just feel vindicated you spend your whole adult life feeling vindicated just going i was right i was right i knew i knew when i was a kid <laughs> and so what was it yeah. about the band that connected with you because obviously you know so leading up to that gig this is and this is the end of 82 so this is the end of the jam which we'll touch on more in a sec because i mentioned that was devastating but presumably before we get to this point there's a lot of love for the jam. So what was your entry point before that gig? Well, it was just kind of through the whole mod thing. I was kind of into a band called Secret Affair. Some of my friends' brothers who were a bit older than me were into the mod thing. So you would just be listening to what they were listening to. You would be outside their bedrooms because you weren't allowed in because you were, weren't cool because you were younger. And you just hear this stuff. So I think my first... I think the first albums that I heard were Setting Suns and All Mod Coms. And I just thought, wow, it just seems so much more sophisticated than the kind of mod revival stuff that I was listening to. And it was just, you know, it was instant for me. I just bought everything I could get my hands on. And uh, yeah, I just had this kind of 18 months because, you know, I was only 14 when the jam split up. So I had about 18 months or two years of a complete obsession where that was all I kind of listened to and, and the, you know, my walls were just covered with the posters. I mean, they were very much my band. I mean, the mod thing was important to me in terms of the way that I dressed and, you know, I loved hanging out just around scooters because I couldn't ride them at that age. <laughs> Although I did, try and, I did try and do that across the field once but that was a bit disastrous but you know he spoke to me really um I just used to sort of sit in my bedroom windowsill just listening to you know just putting the world to rights Paul Weller just put the world to rights for me yeah so uh, thank you Mr. <laughs> well and on behalf of many I'm sure right yeah exactly because um, obviously that po- it, it's weird I and mean, we, we talked about this a couple of times on the podcast where it's difficult to kind of imagine back 30 40 years ago without kind of transporting what life's like now but this is obviously pre-internet pre-mobile phone all that stuff so the only way you really can connect with this band is through tv performances through radio and through magazine that's the yeah. only way you get you get that information of what's coming next isn't it yeah I mean when I look back at that time I often and wish I could, you know, distill that, bottle that feeling. And I do get that feeling back when I see him live. And I, you know, I need to be near the front because that's the only way I can recreate that feeling. But you're right. Um, it's so much easier now. I mean, the only, you know, bands seemed distant then, didn't they? They seemed, you know, they were on the TV screen, you know, usually once a week if they were on top of the pops. I mean, that was such an event, you know, Thursday night, you know, you'd have butterflies in your stomach, you know, you'd be telling your mum to shut up, stop talking, be quiet while I listen to this, you know. And literally, you know, my heart would be in my mouth before the jam came out. I was thinking, oh God, you know, what's this single been like? You know, I hope they're good. And no one was allowed to say anything critical about them. And I just want complete silence. So yeah, that was very exciting. And then of course the fan club, I mean, that was just amazing, you know, getting your little card, you know, saying that you remember of this, you know, special club. And then you get the letters, the photocopied, handwritten. And I just like would pour over Paul's, 
beautiful handwriting. I mean, of course, the actor had beautiful handwriting. That was no surprise. And I remember he used to sign off some of the letters, stay cool, clean and hard, which I just thought was just amazing. Um, <laughs> I'm not heard yeah. that one. Stay cool, clean and clean hard. And hard. Yeah, I don't know whether he did that on every letter because I was obviously only a, a, a fan club member for that last period, but stay cool, clean and hard. I've never forgotten that. And I just thought, I've got to try and use that. In fact, so this is the first time I've said it, really. So... <laughs> It doesn't trip the tongue that easily, does it? (laughs) Stay cool, clean and hot. Yeah, and as a woman, it's kind of a weird thing to say. (laughs) But there you go. I've said it. And I have tried to live by that mantra ever since I read that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, brilliant. Now, we'll talk about some of those standout singles and what the music meant to you. But let's go back to that gig. Let's go back to that first gig. So you you get the coach trip there. And what, then you meet your mates when you get to Port Talbot? Yeah, meet, meet my mod mates when um, I get there. And there's a, a lovely photograph that was taken on my disc camera, which my mum actually found the other day. She goes, oh, look, I found your camera. And I said, that is the 1982 Jam gig camera. And I've still got that photograph. I think there were about five of us. And I'm at the back and I'm standing next to my friend who was known as Polo, Mike, Mike, who's still a good friend. And he's wearing a cravat, as he did, a paisley cravat. And yeah, he's got a moustache. I was incredible. It just seemed um, immense. It was, you know, one of those great big leisure centres. I wrote about this actually in, in Derek D'Souza's new book, In the Crowd, just the kind of feeling of going there. And it was just, I mean, it's the greatest experience of my young life, really. I mean, that just set the tone for everything. I thought nothing can better this. The whole energy of that night was just really hot, sweaty and smelly. And just the way the crowd moved, they they seemed to kind of move as one. I'm sure I was like off my feet for most of the night, you know, just kind of bouncing up and down. I've not, and I've seen a lot of live bands and I've never experienced anything like that since. It was absolutely spectacular, really. It, really yeah, hard Derek, to put into words. In Derek's book, you put it perfectly, as you say, this is kind levitation, which I love. Um, and it almost, yeah. when, when you hear Paul singing from the floorboards up, which I did a couple of weeks back on the on the live yeah. gigs, that's what he's trying to express, isn't it? It's that feeling of you're all rising as one, you know? Yeah. And I think other fans of other bands may argue differently, but I, I think the, the jam... And their relationship with their fans was very unique. And that whole gig experience was very, very unique. And I, I've never, I always felt a little bit let down when I go and see other live bands. Which, which, it wasn't the same. And that's when I wrote about it in Derek's book and said, you know, you, 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 know, you always remember your first time. Because it was kind of like that. It's something that you'll never really forget. But yeah. I feel so grateful that, you know, there's lots of people that didn't see the jam. So I'm so grateful that my mum said, Okay, you're only 14, but I'm going to let you go. Yeah, because so many kids would not have been allowed, right? So many kids not have got that experience. And I mean, you say it's like nothing else, but you clearly didn't do the View to a Kill tour with Duran Duran in like 84, 85. I would imagine that was pretty similar. Come on, Duran Duran are pretty special, right? (laughs) You're trying to goad me now, Dan. (laughs) Your face. (laughs) That's the next podcast, actually, Desperately Seeking Simon. I mean, obviously, this is the Paul Weller fan podcast, but it would be daft for us to talk about the jam without talking about Bruce and Rick. Yes. The three of them were very special. The sound they made was very special. And those guys mm. played such an important part in that band as well. So the obsession wasn't just a Weller one, I'm guessing, right, with the jam? Well, there was, obviously, as a 14-year-old girl, the Weller obsession. He, <laughs> my walls, my bedroom walls were kind of Artex as they were. <laughs> and you 
like to see little indentations across Paul's mouth where I kissed him goodnight and the architects would break through. But I really hope that nobody noticed, but they were there. They were there. And there were indentations on Bruce and Rick's faces, put it that way. <laughs> but I will say, yes, as a unit, as a band, they were very, very special. And a couple of years ago, um, one of the, I think it was the Jam Literary event or, or one of the events that Stuart DeBille organised that Rick spoke at, I remember saying that to, to Rick to kind of, you know, because obviously Paul over the years has got so much attention and, you know, it must have been so difficult for them. But and I just wanted to say for what it was worth that that was a very unique thing and it was about the three of them. It was about the sound and the energy that they created. I mean, he's a phenomenal drummer. Bruce is a great bass player. Bruce jumping up and down in the air, doing his sort of kind of Townsend-esque kind of splits and, and Rick was a real powerhouse. So yes, it was about that feeling that they had together as a unit, certainly. How did you find out that the they split? Where, where did the news come to you first from? Um, oh, it's on, I think it was on Radio 1. You'd hear the tone of my voice drops as I remember it. I mean, literally, I thought I was going to have a heart attack. Um, yeah, uh, my world just fell apart. I mean, I just was in mourning. Um, so, yeah, I think it was on Radio 1, Newsbeat or whatever. Yeah, and I remember then seeing that fateful interview on Brighton Pier, Paul with his blinking chewing gum. Oh, good, we're just so angry at him. <laughs> so angry. But... Um, and it's, you know, it took a long time. It took a long time. I, I, I didn't welcome the Star Council with open arms. And I've spoken about this before. So, yes, I was one of those bitter jam fans, really, for, for, a, for a while. But then when I look back at the timeline, you know, I was completely hooked by, you know, Café Blur. So I was, I was fully on board by then. So that's probably only about a year. But at the time, it seems about like a decade mm. of bitterness. Um, but, yes, I was, I was totally crushed by it. Because they, you know, they were everything. They were the soundtrack to everything. I mean, they were the thing that I put on in the morning and listened to. They were the thing that got me through school. I hated school. I was the only mod in school. My best friend was the only punk. I just couldn't imagine life without them. But little did I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is as well, it's that thing of it's completely out of your control. You're completely powerless. And I would imagine this is how, I mean, Rick and I talked about this a little bit, but I imagine this is how they, Rick and Bruce felt as well. There was nothing mm. they could do about it at all. And as no. a fan, there was nothing you could do to, to change that situation at all. So you did have to go through those stages of grief, didn't you? Yeah, it was my first major loss, which just sounds ridiculous, but it was, it was. So um, it was really, really hard. And, and especially being at kind of, they were always regarded as a kind of a boys band and especially being a female fan, you know what I mean? It's like, that. I think people just thought that was really weird. That was so upset about that. <laughs> How did your parents handle that? Cause that, that's one of the key things. I've got young kids now as well. You kind of, you want to protect them, obviously, don't you? You want to kind of, yeah. you, know, you want, you don't want anything bad to happen to them. Anything you can fix that's in your control to do so, you, you'd happily do that. Oh yeah. I, I, my mum my particularly was so, so great about it. And that was one of the reasons why she said about the, the gig and everything, why she was so supportive of, about that because obviously you know the split had been announced by then and uh yeah so I think it was just she knew that she had to to let me do this thing and she's always been bless her you know she is still here she's always been really supportive of it and she's been so made up about the fact that my kind of career has involved in various ways Paul Weller somehow you know what I mean and then eventually getting to meet him I mean you know she just thinks probably is more excited about it than me really <laughs> she knows but you know I was talking to someone about this the other day about old school friends and people that you meet now and again and um you know anybody that 
kind of knew me would go, oh, yeah, Claire Mom, she was a really big Paul Weller fan. <laughs> it's just like literally the second thing people would say because that was kind of my badge of honour when I was a kid. Yeah, well, and fair enough, right? And it's interesting because if Facebook had been a thing back then, it would probably be similar to how mine is. You know, you get like the Facebook memories stuff. And I was noticing like everything seems to be here's a memory from like 13 years ago, 12 years ago. And every single one is, is well related in some way. You know, back when we were <laughs> posting on Facebook every single hour of every single day. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, I must be so boring. <laughs> <laughs> we should talk about mod then so mod would be pre-jam mod was already in your life it was already a thing was it oh yeah absolutely as i said i was a big uh, secret affair fan i just liked the clothes well obviously the music came first and i kind of got really into kind of 60s stuff sort of stacks of motown my mum was quite a big jazz fan well kind of ella fitzgerald that kind of thing so yeah i was always interested in in the music that surrounded mod but Paul really, you talk about him like he's your brother or something, it's ridiculous, but anyway, Paul, he kind of educate, you know, helped educate me as, as many fans, you know, about the small faces. And, and that was the wonderful thing about the jam. It wasn't just about liking the jam. It was about where it led. I mean, you know, so I would be pouring over Shelley because of the poem on the back of sound effects. You know, I would be listening to the small faces because of him. You know what I mean? Because why has he got that haircut? Okay, so why is he playing a Rickabacker? So then you go off and, you know, who else played a Rickabacker? He would just send you off on this kind of learning curve of a discovery on, of other things. So, yeah. Yes, I was a mod, but I don't think I was a proper mod <laughs> until the jam came along because Paul and his influences sort of educated me so much more. You know, we, we, you'd be fascinated by what he was wearing and why his trousers were, were that length and the kind of jackets that he wore and every video. It'd be so exciting when the video would come out to see what Paul was wearing. And I would go off to Carnaby Street from Cardiff on a coach. <laughs> you'd go to Milandy to go and get myself a scarf so I could wear the scarf and then make sure you tied it the correct way. And it's all down to him. <laughs> <laughs> An expensive, expensive thing expensive. to wear. Right? Yeah. Well, no, they were quite cheap. They were really horrible quality. In fact, I've still got some of my Milandi scarves. They were really, really horrible quality. And they're blinking awful jam shoes, but we thought they were great at the time. Uh, Eddie and I talked about this a little bit, Eddie Pillar on the podcast, and mod means different things to different people. I cheekily asked him whether there was a quiz to get into his mod fest- modcast festivals. Like, is there a mod quiz to prove that you're a mod type thing? But <laughs> mod means different things to different people. What does it mean to you? It just means having really good taste in everything from music to clothes, just being caring about style, caring about um, the small details, really. They just they just matter. I just think um, people that are into mod are just the luckiest people in the world, really, because we've got all the best music, all the best clothes, all the best haircuts. We just like the best of everything. <laughs> um, but I don't think anybody that is into mod ever goes, oh, I am a mod. I would never say I was a mod because I'm an absolutely crap mod. <laughs> you know, because you just wouldn't say that. But it's just those are the things that I love. And I've always loved the, the films that I love, you know, throughout my life. I've never been always, I wouldn't say I'd always been as into mod as I was when I was young. But as I look back over my life, all the things that I've been into are all connected to it. And there's a kind of mod thread running through my life. So it's almost like a stick of rock. If you were to, if you were a stick of rock and you chopped you in half, mod would be the little wording. That's really funny that you say that because my friend Mike, who was with me at that first gig, actually said that to me one day over a coffee. He said, Claire, if you were a stick of rock, we'd cut you in half. It would have mod. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's really funny that you say that. So, yeah. Oh, good. Right. Okay. Well, you talk about style. I mean, it doesn't get much more stylish than the style council. It took a little while, but 
when you got into it, you got into it in a big way, did you? But but not being your band in the same way as the jam would be, I guess. No, it was different. And obviously other fans, you know, we grew up with Paul and as we grew, he grew. You know, we've, we've grown together. So we've grown together musically. I mean, nobody, I mean, some people like the same music that, you know, and they, they never change, but that is not the nature of modern. It's not the nature of Paul Weller. When I first saw that bus... That open top bus. I was not a happy bunny. Looks at you. I was like, "What?" I mean, it was just a shock of seeing Paul without a guitar for a start. It just, just, and it, and it looked like he didn't know what to do with himself. He looked really uncomfortable because he always came across as really shy. And I think he probably still is quite shy. Then you know, whenever he was interviewed, you'd like you'd be cringing, thinking, "This is the coolest man in the world." So what, why does he seem uncomfortable? But he, he obviously didn't enjoy being interviewed or having to talk about stuff he just wanted to do the music so there he was on this bus in this i think was he wearing a mac in the bus or yeah i think you're right yeah i think yeah, I think, yeah um yeah. anyway he just looks uncomfortable all the people do you know what we know now it's nikki and that doing all their dancing i just it was just awful it was just like why is the man from the merton park it's been all weller but um <laughs> yeah so i really and to this day i do not like that single because uh it's it, uh makes me feel a bit queasy because it reminds me of that time but then, of course, my whole journey was changing musically. I was listening to more kind of jazz and I really got into everything but the girl because of Paul and because Tracy Thorne sang on the album. Yeah, I loved the style. It was a bit more sophisticated. So, yeah, got myself a Mac. Yeah, smartened myself up a bit. It was less about targets and badges, you know. So um, I kind of went with it. And, yeah, I loved the music. I loved the jazz music. And and um, I loved the piano. I, I play piano and I was learning piano at the time. So I got all the sheet music for Shout to the Top and Ever Changing Moves and tried really badly to play it. And when I spoke to Mick Talbot recently, I said to him, it was kind of him that kind of saved me with the Style Council because it was that piano like mixed blessings and all that stuff I just loved it it was the most mod thing most sophisticated thing I'd ever heard so yeah I was fully on board but it but it wasn't the jam it wasn't the same and you cannot compare them because they're two radically different two different things I love the fact that you got to interview Mick as well so this was around the Style Council documentary time for the Mod Culture website. And uh, yes. I mean, A, he's a lovely guy. Um, I mean, you'll know that I've, you were there when I interviewed him at the live one. You've, you, you've, you've heard the podcast and stuff as well. He's, I mean, he's a hilarious guy, but he's such a talent, isn't he? Oh, he's an amazing, amazing pianist and just so kind of modest and humble. But you can just see what was so lovely talking to him is that you could really see what Paul found in him. I think he was, you know, he was so important for Paul's kind of journey. And he was just the sort of person that Paul needs to be around. I mean, you know, when he talked about the early days of um, the two of them in the Star Council and just talking about the sort of same films that they liked and all the kind of touch points that they had and all their interests. So Mick was obviously really central to that. And yeah, just a, an incredible pianist and just so knowledgeable about music. So yeah, and, and just a pleasure and very funny, really, really funny, lovely bloke. Yeah, and it's interesting. Yeah, when you're reading your article, you can see that, that connection they had between the two of them, which yes. probably we wouldn't have really understood at the time because I don't think they were very vocal about that exactly at the time, but it, but it was really detailed, really in-depth. Those those first meetings they had, they spent hours talking about the same things, didn't they? Yeah. I mean, I think it was, it was something that I read that Paul said about the Star Council at the time was that he said it when they split up, is that 
we've made some really good music, but that people won't get it until many years to come. And he's just so right. I mean, he just obviously has this sixth sense about music that he was so right. We didn't get it. No. And look at us now. So it's just incredible music. And also the sort of diversity of the music. I mean, the fact that, you know, like on one EP, you've got four different types of music. I mean, like hearing on this current tour when they, they played Have You Ever Had It Blue? I mean, you know, just what a great track, you know, that whole kind of bossing over kind of beat. And I mean... Musically, it's amazing. And, and, and he's with an amazing band that can really recreate that now. Yeah. Well, and songs like It's a Very Deep Sea, which was in the documentary, but he's been playing yes. live on the latest tour as well. I mean, that's, again, when you think about the Confessions album, it's like you know, half of it's a classical album. Yeah. And on the other side, flip it over, it's a pop album. It's nuts. Yeah. I think it's just incredible, really. And it's really nice to, to know that these things are really being appreciated now because they were ahead of their time and, and the documentary was excellent at showing that and, and then that last scene that we didn't know about I mean it just blew people away didn't it I mean that brings a tear to my eye watching it now yeah 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 absolutely absolutely stunning now we should talk about your working life so as a journalist when was it that you started wanting to write and broadcast and be involved in in getting your view on the world I guess across to other people I started out in my 20s. I worked in Liverpool on the local paper there. I lived in an area called The Dingle. You know where Bread was filmed? Remember that series, Bread? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Carla yeah. Lane series, yeah. Carla Lane, that's it. Gotta get um, up, gotta get up. That's it. <laughs> and those streets that were like at a 45 degree angle with the little red terraces. Well, I lived on a street like that. <laughs> and um, yeah, and I had um, a little bone shaker rickety bike like 1930s bike. Now imagine this now in bloody the heart of Dingle's like Toxteth area, which I'd sprayed with green hammerite paint. So it was all like speckledy with a basket on the front. So I used to cycle looking like some weird kind of Morrissey character to the paper. <laughs> like the heart, like the Hovis kid. <laughs> yeah, like the Hovis kid, but you know, from Wales, not a local. I just literally, the kids, the local kids would throw stones at me. Go, ah, look at you, look at you. So yeah, that was a kind of baptism of fire. Yeah, I was just like a little rookie reporter on the paper there, really. And that's how I, I started out. And then I was there for a couple of years and then moved back to Cardiff and then. Oh God, I've been all over the place, moved to London, and then I worked on publishing news, which was kind of like a weekly publishing newspaper, and got to interview loads of authors and stuff. I did a little stint at the Beeb as well, up at White City. But the mod, the kind of jam mod thing and the book, that came a lot later, really. Um, probably in the last decade, I was just doing a bit of mod writing on the side for mod culture, just because it was my interest. And I thought, well, do you know what? I quite fancy writing about stuff that I love because I, I ended up kind of in the business press and just, I mean, I've edited magazines on everything, parenting, healthcare, office equipment, everything, you know, it's kind of like one of those, have I got news for you things, you know, <laughs> yeah, here's yeah, a really yeah. weird magazine about a really new subject. Well, I would be editor of those things, which I really enjoyed because it was about how do you make something interesting? that's really boring, you know, but um, I just thought, oh God, I really want to write about stuff that I care about now and so so I just started doing that for mod culture and and then I started doing some radio work at BBC Wales with um Alan Thompson on his show and I would go in and I would be his kind of go-to person to talk about the 60s well and mod and all that and Al was an old mod 
and he'd met Paul and everything and he met McCartney and he, you know. So yeah, we started doing a bit of radio work together and then we were going to do a documentary on Welsh Mod and that's how the book came about because we kind of put this idea around and we didn't really get off the ground or well, they, they wouldn't take it at the time and, and you'll know how difficult it is to get documentaries commissioned and this very expensive business. So I decided to do the book and everything's kind of followed on from there really, you know, from the book and now doing Detail Magazine. So let's talk about Welsh Mod. Let's kick off with that. So this was self-published. Yeah. And the idea of this was it was looking at the, the the mod subculture in Wales particularly, but from the 60s right through to the present day. So in terms of researching that, I mean, I guess it's a lot easier now with the internet, I would assume. But where do you start with that? How much of it is about the characters that stand out locally versus and, and how different was Wales to everywhere else? I've got so many bloody questions about this. I don't know which one you can answer first, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, where, where do you start with the research for a project like that? Well, luckily, because I was kind of heavily active in the mod scene down in Wales at the time, there was kind of you know, about eight years ago, we had a great scene here and we had some great promoters who were putting on bands and great events. So I knew a lot of people that I could immediately go to to talk to. But then it became very clear that I didn't want to just do a kind of, oh, this is what we did in late 79, 80, you know, for a certain generation. And as I started doing my research, then I thought, well, I want to include, I want to go back to the 60s. And I was discovering fascinating information about this kind of bands that played during the 60s and also the local bands that were here. I mean, there's a the band that I covered in the book called The Eyes of Blue that supported The Who, supported Georgia Fame and like won this kind of beat competition in 1966. And I managed to track them down. So once you start, as you know what it's like with these things, once you get a little taste of them, you start working on it, you just think, okay. So I tracked them down and interviewed them. And then in this competition, they were up against um, Eamon Corner and they beat Eamon Corner. So then I got in touch with Andy Fairweather Low and talked to him. And then I also got in touch with uh, Jeff Banks, who was from Ebervale, the designer, the clothes designer, Jeff Banks, who was great. And then he was talking to me about the period 1958 when he was a, a young mod. I very quickly just started building up this whole timeline. I created like a Facebook page where people could get in touch if they had stories from those days. And then people would get in touch that were in their 70s that were mods in the 60s in South Wales. But like not just, oh, you know, token mods, like proper mods, riding Lambrettas, wearing really smart clothes, going up to London, really into it. And I just thought, God, there really is a bigger story here because people don't really connect the mod scene with Wales at all. But it seemed to me that the way geographically Wales is, particularly South Wales with all the valleys and everything, that the cold tribal nature of a subculture really fits in here. You know what I mean? As I've said many times, it's very much more difficult to be a mod and going around in a sharp suit and riding a kind of hairdryer with mirrors on it in Wales than it is in London, isn't it? You know, because everyone just kind of accepts it. Yeah, London, yeah, but here, yeah. you know, we were pushing against the norm. Yeah, I just got some great stories. And it was always going to be a photography book as well, and always going to be about the personal stories. It wasn't going to be kind of my view on mod. It was very much, I suppose that's a journalist in me. I just wanted to hear and document other people's stories. So the lovely thing about it is that some of the people that I spoke to have kind of passed on, but also I feel that, you know, we have documented their memories forever now. I think that's quite special. Yeah. Well, there's a podcast idea in this. You know this, right? A <laughs> <laughs> yes. Welsh mod podcast. Is yeah, that's thing, true. Right? Good idea. Yeah. So this and this then led to Detail Magazine. All right, I'm thinking Detail Magazine, which we're soon to be on edition number five, five. which we 
we'll talk yeah. about in a second, was inspired by an event around the jam with Stuart and Nia. Yeah, they did those brilliant literary events, which I attended. And also I interviewed Derek D'Souza um, at one of them. Stuart. It was great because he just said, look, there's hardly any women, you know, chatting. It's all about blokes sitting around, you know, in their desert boots going, raw, 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 football, raw, raw, raw. So he said, we need a woman and... I was gobby enough to want to. <laughs> so I said, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it. And then, yeah, it was a privilege to interview uh, Derek for my literary event. And I just felt that at those events, they were really, really special. And you, you just had a, a kind of group of like-minded people. And I just thought, you know, there's more There's more to this, you know. And because of the generation that we are and buying vinyl and stuff, I just thought, well, maybe actually there's room for something in print. And I just love magazines. You know, as I said, it doesn't really matter what they're about. I sat on this for about two years. I just thought, you know what? It's a ready-made market for a magazine here. And I think doing the book, it gave me the confidence. Because what we, you know, we produce magazines and we work in publishing anyway. So it just gave me the confidence to think, well, why not? And of course, you've now got the whole crowdfunding model that you can test something in the market before you launch it. It's been really successful. I mean, we sold out of our first issue within a month. But the most important thing is that we have on board a really great collective of writers that obviously just want to contribute and want to be part of it. So I kind of see detail like a bit like Style Council in that it's a kind of group of like-minded people. So I kind of call it the Detail Collective. Tell me about some of the people who've been involved so far. It's a pretty impressive list to say the least. Yeah, so we've got um, Eddie Pillar has been on board since the beginning and we've had a brilliant interview with him, with Andrew golden of all people in the last issue and then all you know jason disley uh, jason brummel they've all been on board really and we've got paul moody who writes for uncut and the nme he's joining us from the next issue we've got claudia elliott yeah we've just been really really lucky with people have been so enthusiastic and wanted to take part. And we've had some great interviews already. I mean, obviously, Mick's been, Mick Talbot's been featured in the last one. I've interviewed Soup Money. I've interviewed Steve Ellis. I just think people just love the idea of a print magazine, you know, because we've just kind of, print was supposed to be dead, but it clearly it isn't. It must be great creating something that is not only your passion point, but a passion point for so many others as well. Like the feedback you're getting must be great. Yes. I mean, you know, I never really wanted to do it like, oh, I'm the editor of this magazine. I didn't, didn't want to be a figurehead I just wanted to kind of I want sounds a bit weird going to be a vessel to produce this thing you know I know how to put magazines together you know and that is my passion so it was just creating something that other people could contribute to and also just to show off their works we've got some really fantastic writers in the mod scene and that's what came out of Stuart and Ian's events you know what I mean people that you know there's some great people that really have something to say and are also very very creative they're you know they're writing their own books I mean you've only got to look at Mark Baxter who wrote a great piece on bespoke tailoring for the last issue you know what mark has done over the years in terms of you know going from being an author to a kind of pr person and now doing documentaries so everybody within this little collective is contributing things to the scene you know and paul weller is all part of that as well you know what i mean he's kind of in the mix because we've all been influenced and we all love him and love what he does so it just feels like this wonderful extended family of people of you know photographers and writers and creative people so i feel very privileged to be part of that really but also detail is a way of kind of showing off that work providing things for people to get excited about again now we should touch on weller solo because clearly means a huge amount to you as well his solo music i mean there's a few things so one, I'm right in thinking you've not yet interviewed Paul Weller, but you have met. 
Yes. Okay, so we'll yeah. come back to the meeting in a second. But the next issue of Detail Magazine, you have managed to get Stevie Craddock, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. I damn you, damn you. <laughs> <laughs> come on, Craddock, come on this one, come on. It's only because I'm talking about clothes. We oh, have right. this... Um, got it. We, we <laughs> have this... <laughs> We have this section at the back of the magazine called Sometimes, Always, Never, which um, people will argue about this as well, whether it's always, sometimes, never. But anyway, I'm not going to get into that about the buttons, the way you do it, your buttons on your three button jacket. And so we just ask people, you know, what they have in their wardrobe, what's never in the wardrobe, what's sometimes in the wardrobe, whatever. So um, I thought Steve would be a, a great one for that. And that's the great thing about this magazine is you've always, you can get these people that have been interviewed loads of times, but you've always got something new to ask them because they've never really spoken in depth about mod and what it means to them and clothes and that that aspect. So, um, yeah, so he, I spoke to him just before they started the tour. He was down at Black Barn. I didn't really realise this till after. I thought, well, he might be at Black Barn. He probably is at Black Barn because I knew they were there doing rehearsals so yeah that was a really really nice conversation and he talked to me I won't tell you too much because it's going to be in the magazine so he talked to me about you know what he loves wearing and kind of footwear um, and also he's got a new album of instrumental music coming out as well so we talked a little bit about that but I mean yeah he's he's a lovely guy and such an underrated guitarist the recent tour i went three different nights brighton and a couple of nights in london the first two nights i was on the left hand side so i was pretty much directly in front of andy crofts who's an incredible bassist and just effortless he's not even he's not even looking at the strings was the thing that surprised <laughs> me which i think is probably normal right but i was kind of like oh, they don't even look at the strings man it seems like he's in a sort of trance when yes. he's playing yeah, he kind of looks ahead i mean and then the third time i was in front of craddock and i've not done that for a little while because obviously we've not had gigs for like a few years a he looks like he's in the river dance with those foot pedals going. Oh, around. just always touching the pedals. Yeah. yeah. I mean, leave the pedal alone, Steve. <laughs> um, and then he's on his knees filling with the knobs and making it sound like all spacey and effectsy and whatever. But as a guitarist, Christ, it's just oh, it's he's brilliant watching. Amazing. Incredible. He's amazing. I always felt that Paul's band, when it was Steve White, Damon Minchella, was the best liner. But I've changed my mind. <laughs> I think now, yeah, it's just with the two drummers, with Steve Pilgrim and Ben at the back, you know, when they're doing the, oh, that's amazing. With, you know, when Ben's standing up, it's just, it's just. He looks so cool. He's almost like Bez on the percussion. Like, you know, they're having yeah, he is, stuff. isn't he? It's like loving the groove. And then Pilgrim's face is just, for a couple of songs, I just watched Steve's face for <laughs> and the expressions. It's just, sometimes he looks yeah. like he's in agony playing the drums. Other times he's like catching flies his mouth it's brilliant so far what a singer as well yeah God. going hatch yeah, him live on his own Incredible. so, let, so let's sum up the last 30 years of Wella Solo I don't know how we do that in a few minutes obviously that you were there and a fan from very early on I would imagine uh, yes I remember going to see him and I was trying to think this morning what date it was but I do remember going to see him and it's just mad when you think about it you know having gone to see him on this recent tour again I think it was like Crawley or somewhere you know it was some ledger centre <laughs> and I remember just walking in there and just walking right down the front right up to the amp and they were just like a, a smattering of people and uh, that's nuts isn't it yeah I know and <laughs> You just can't believe, you know, I just can't believe that happened, really. It was really wonderful then to sort of see him rise up again, you know, out of the ashes of that. The music that he can, his solo music is just uh, incredible. I mean, more than the Star Council, that has kind of, yeah, he's made up for it. I've forgiven him because he, <laughs> <laughs> I forgive him for the for, song because of songs like Above the Clouds and 
Football Rush. I'm just trying to think of some of my favourites, you know. And I still can't choose between Stanley Road and Wildwood. I can't. I can't. They're just amazing. Yeah, yeah. So that was wonderful. Um, and that was around the time that I moved to London, actually. I mean, Stanley Road, was. I just played it and played it and played it up and down the M4. And it goes back to saying what I said before. It's just that Paul was always there at whatever stage in your life. Paul was always there. The most recent tour, we've had, he's dipped into those first four albums, which were all 90s. So we had, you know, stuff from the first album where we had Into Tomorrow and Above the Clouds. We had Wildwood, obviously, from Wildwood. Stanley Road, we had Stanley Road. And I'd not heard yeah. that fly for, for quite yeah, a while. I'd not heard that for ages. Yeah, exactly. And then Heavy Soul, things like Peacock Suit, you know. And even if you just go, do you know what? Those four albums, those first four solo albums, I absolutely love. But then you go, oh, no, actually, I've also like really like heliocentric and I really like Illumination. And it's like, shit, there's, yeah, nothing, really- there's nothing duff in any of that. <laughs> No, and even though he does, and you know, people don't like As Is Now, I really love As Is Now. I've always loved Come On, Let's Go. He played that on the current tour, didn't he? You know, yeah. um, God, that, that song just, and the guitar in that song, Stevie Craddock, the guitar <laughs> in that song. Oh my God. Yeah, Stanley Road was just, I think that was the kind of vindication for everybody, really. That album, I don't listen to it very much, really, now. But I do like going back to Illumination and Heliocentric. I mean, Sweet Pea, I remember playing that really loud when I was pregnant and just, you know, putting music, thinking that's the first piece of music you're going to hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're just, there's amazing albums. And 22 Dreams, it's just really nice to go back, isn't it? To the, And they are bodies of work. They are complete bodies of work, each of them really. I mean, yes, it is nice, to, you know, to hear the greatest hits and pull out the songs and pick out the best ones, but I really love listening to them all the way through, just like we used to with the albums, you know what I mean? And it was a, a start to finish thing, you know. Setting songs, like Wasteland is probably one of my favourite songs. That takes me back to the railway embankment with the strings on the trees, you know, to make the swings. You know, it's very, very personal, but it's mm. personal for a lot of people. And how many artists can do that? I mean, that's that's the mark of a truly great songwriter, isn't it? That they can do that. They can take you on a journey. And I, I just don't think there's uh, there's many artists out there. I mean, obviously, apart from Beatles, really, I've done that. And I think that's why it's so special for everybody. Yeah. Well, you can see the thousands of people in the crowds, you know, just from the live gigs, let alone people who are buying the albums and stuff. It's, it means something. It's an important thing. His music connects. And to be able to do that for 45 years plus now, that's a very rare thing. That doesn't happen, does it? No, it doesn't. So we haven't interviewed Weller yet. We've got that in common, but you have met him, but but re- relatively recently, right? That first meeting. So was it at Cardiff Castle? Was that right? It was Cardiff Castle, yeah. I mean, I did meet him before that, but it's not. it wasn't the same. I met him the first time I met him was he was, I can't remember what year it was. It was probably about six or seven years ago. I was up in London at a club called Madame Jojo's, which is no longer there. And Keb Darge was DJing. And we kind of knew that Paul had released um, an album with Keb where they'd chosen kind of lesser known soul tracks. And it was kind of the launch for that. So we went up to London and we thought, well, he might be there. And I just had a feeling in my belly. And I said to my mate at the time, I said, do you know what? I think we're going to meet Paul Weller tonight. Anyway, so Paul was DJing, you know, just in front of everybody. And he he just got together with Hannah. So I guess it must have been about 10. I'm trying to think how long they've been together. Yeah, like 2009 or something like that, right? Must have been about 10 years ago. So they were DJing and they were up there. And and it was surreal because, you know, there was Paul Weller. But he was still drinking then. (laughs) I just remember saying at the end of the night to my mate, he's got to walk out. We've got to go up to him. We've got to do this. And she was like, oh, I'm really scared. I said, I don't care. It's now or never. I do remember going up to Hannah and just going, 
it's all right if we say hello, but I don't, she didn't say anything. And then Paul was with his kind of minders and he was obviously really quite drunk. So he he was just walking out and I just kind of went up to him and said something ridiculous like, thank you for being, you know, thanks for the inspiration and all that, you know, something really, really nasty. But he was so lovely and just smiled and gave me a hug. And then my friend couldn't speak. She just had this huge grin on her face and he just gave her a kiss. And that was it. And then we went outside and then I just cried. Because <laughs> it was just... <laughs> I'd had a few as well. So that wasn't like a proper meeting. Anyway, and then the proper meeting, it was great. So I was going to the gig anyway. I didn't know it was going to happen. One of my friends is kind of the niece of Andy Fairweather Low, And... We walked into the castle grounds and she said, Andy couldn't make it tonight. So I've got this. And she handed me the pass, triple A. She said, do you know what this means? And I said, no. And she said, it basically means you can just go everywhere. So I looked at everybody that I was with who just literally looked at me with, you know, hatred and love and excitement. <laughs> all your mates. Yeah, yeah. Bye. <laughs> I said, you know, I've got to go now, don't you? <laughs> so off we went backstage and... Um, yeah, I mean, I wrote I wrote about this. I had to write about it. I wrote a little blog post about it. And I think it's probably one of the best things that I've written because it was just so from the heart. And I just thought, because everyone kept saying to me, oh, what was it like? What was it like? And I got fed up with telling people. So I thought, Do you know what? I'm going to write about it so you all know what it was like. And if anybody ever asks me again, I'll just send you the article. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll send you the article. <laughs> so yeah, we went backstage. And um, so I was with Andy... Uh, with Lowe's wife, Barbara Lowe, who's a lovely lady, who I'd met before anyway, and these two friends of mine. And um, then I suddenly just saw this kind of figure <laughs> with white hair, dark, cross behind me, and I thought, oh, my God, that's him. Um, and I was actually quite calm, just really happy. And he was so lovely. He was so lovely about the book because he'd had a copy of the book and he, he said, you know, that he really liked the book and it was different and all this. And then we just, yeah, we had quite a long chat. And I saw Steve and had some photos taken with Steve because I met Steve a few times before. He'd like DJed before gigs down here, you know, they, we'd have like after show parties locally and stuff. So that was nice. And yeah, we, chat, we chatted for about 10, 15 minutes. And I remember asking him, which was again a really stupid question probably. I said, I'm meeting my kind of idol I said but I guess you've got idols too you know so so you know this must be like you meeting Maka and you went who and I went and I thought oh no I hope he calls him Maka which I know he does and I went Maka and he said oh yeah so then we just talked then about this whole conversation about you know whether you felt star when he felt starstruck you know I was starstruck does he feel starstruck when he meets people and who made him feel starstruck but yeah he was just really 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 nice pleasant polite and so ridiculously cool so cool and just easy just easy company but um that wasn't the best bit though the best bit was then going back out into the crowd because they had to get ready to go on stage and then tomorrow never knows came on so you kind of knew that they were going on so then I had to run around the side of the stage and show them my pass and then I ran up behind they were already there one of the roadies said to me oh watch your head love as I was climbing over these cables because I had to go and stand at the side of the stage then and Paul was there and he saw me and he nodded at me (laughs) went right and that was it I died and gone to heaven. So it wasn't even the talking, it was just walking onto us the same stage as Paul Weller and Paul Weller looking at me and just going, all right. 
was it. And then, of course, then we stood at the side of the stage and they came on and um, to see Cardiff Castle in the background, you know, my home crowd and to be there. I mean, best day of my life. Absolutely. <laughs> Brilliant. I love it. And I love how we've gone full circle. That's, that sounds like the kids back, the 15 year old kids back. Again. Yeah, it was. It was that. Yeah. And it never leaves you, I don't think. And that's a really special thing. Brilliant. Hey, look, Claire, this has been so lovely chatting with you. I loved hearing your stories and your memories and what it all means to you as well. And those connections has been brilliant. But as you'll know, as a listener to the podcast, I have two final questions for you before you go. So number one, you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the Jam, the Style Council or Solo. What are you going to go with? Only one. Yeah. It's going to be Boy About Town from Sound Ah. Effects, my favourite album. You've got Um, Sound Effects in the background there as well, haven't you? Yeah. I put I put that there. <laughs> it's on my wall, but I put it there. <laughs> Just to show I'm a fan, folks. <laughs> yeah, I'm a fan. It would be Boy About Town. Yeah, from that album, definitely. I think I can just listen to that again and again. And and it's just you know the lyrics. Now it's a beautiful poem about youth, about being a mod. To me, I love that. Like paper caught in wind, up street, down street. Oh. You know, it's just beautiful. And when he played it at the South Bank, the acoustic version and, and with Hannah's arrangement, oh, it just blew my mind. It still blows my mind. And he sang it in a slightly different register and, and just talking about full circle. Like, you know, it was all full circle for me that. So, yeah, very, very special. Thank you, Mr. Weller. Love it. Love it. Okay. Well, obviously, purpose of this podcast is not least to talk to lovely people like yourself with these stories, these connections, these love of Mr. Weller. But it's for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. I mean, God, it has to happen soon. We're getting into hundreds of these episodes now, for goodness sake. If it happens, pray God, when it happens, what should I ask him? Oh, God, that's a really, really difficult one, Dan. Don't ask him why I broke up the jam. I really don't know. Do you know, I thought, you know, when I thought about interviewing him myself, I thought, what what would I ask him? Because I don't think there's anything that he hasn't really been asked before. But I think you would have to ask him about, I don't know, what's his favourite Beatles track or something like that. I think you just have to ask Paul about music. Paul just wants to talk about music, I think. I would ask him that. And what else would I ask him? Why did he change the, why does he change the lyrics in Tales from the Riverbank? When he sings it. I was why thinking you... that the other day, yeah. Yeah, why is that? So, yeah, I'd probably want to ask him stupid stuff like that. Uh, to be fair, I think in Brighton he changed the lyrics to Head Start to Happiness, but I, I think that might have been because he could There are two sort of <laughs> slightly different versions, but now I'm being really anal. But he does it in Tales to the Riverbank, and um, when he first played that live, because he, he would never play jam songs in the set, and I think that was one of the first songs that were, came into the set, and the lyrics changed, so I want to know why. That's and he'll probably just think... That's ridiculous. I don't know why. I thought we just did it randomly on the day. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember what the original ones were. Yeah, <laughs> it stuck exactly. with me. Uh, that's a great question, though, Claire. Hey, look, this has been so lovely. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. We'll put all the information in the show notes for this podcast about the book and Detail Magazine, etc., etc. But thanks for joining us on the podcast. Really, really enjoyed that. Thank you, Dan. Well, that was lovely. My thanks once again to Claire Mahoney, editor of Detail Magazine, for that very special podcast chat. Find out about the magazine, the book, and articles from Claire on my website. And don't forget, folks, stay cool, clean, and hard. Brilliant. (laughs) If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please do share on your social media channels. You can leave a review as well on Apple Podcasts. It all helps to spread the word. Plus, if you fancy it, you can buy me a virtual coffee too. Just head to the store on my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com or just search on Google, Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Dead easy.
Next up on the podcast, another very special guest, London's first lady of soul, P.P. Arnold. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.